0: Okay, good morning, everyone. Good morning. Good morning. Welcome to everybody online. Uh, Pastor Rodi has asked me to fill in for uh, this session and maybe one more, depending on whether or not we're able to actually make it through this material that I have for us today. But um, today we are going to be looking at um, something uh, which I, I really have come to enjoy. This is a hymn by one of our church fathers in the Syriac Orient. And I'll talk a little bit about that here in a minute. But um, in any case, why don't we get started as we always do with an invocation and prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Okay, yes. And now for something completely different. Um, We will, as I said, be looking at a hymn um, written by St. Ephraim the Syrian. St. Ephraim the Syrian. Welcome. Um, this is a, a fantastic piece that I, I happened across. And you c- I, I gave the bibliographical information up at the very top of the handout that you have. So you can find this uh, little book called A Treasure, the Treasure House of Mysteries Explorations of the Sacred Text, that is the Bible, through poetry in the Syriac tradition. Okay. So when we think about the umbrella that is Christendom, okay, we typically think of Um, the Latin-speaking Western Church and the Greek-speaking Eastern Church. Uh, But the translator of this book suggests that there is, in fact, a third strand of Christianity, and that is what he calls the Syriac Orient. Okay, Syriac. So Syriac is a dialect of Aramaic, and Aramaic is a dialect of Hebrew. Okay, so you can kind of think of, like, these are, like... um, cousins of each other right they're distinct but th- but they're related right um, having their origin in the middle east they are northern semitic languages and a dialect you can kind of think of it as like again s- within this family of languages um, but it has different grammar different um, uh, vocabulary um, different cultural norms associated therewith, and uh, and all of that so so yes um, this hymn that we're about to read was written in syriac and um, what we're going to find is that, especially with Saints uh, Ephraim, is that the Syriac uh, authors and the way that they would, they would write, our Syriac church fathers, were often very highly imaginative. And um, they would explore, as you see in the title of this book, the Bible using poetic devices. And well, I think what we'll find is, is that, um, well, I'm, I'm very confident, in fact, that we'll find St. Ephraim to be very, very biblically astute and very insightful, too, with what he does in this hymn, okay? Now, in terms of meter, I'm not sure exactly how this would have been sung, um, but it is a hymn, and um, it's, it's very rich, and um, it, w- it has a, a lot in store for us, so I'm excited to, to, to look through this with you. Do you guys have any questions on, on what I've just kind of brought up before we get going? Okay, off we go then. Okay, so basically, what we're going to find is w- um, we have a hymn where there's a conversation going on between death and Satan. Okay, Satan, where uh, death is personified here, and death and Satan are uh, very anxious. Satan, in particular, um, because of what he's not sure what he's going to do with Jesus. Okay, the setting of this hymn is. Christ is on the cross and he just died and descended uh, into Hades, okay? So that's, that's what's going on in the context of this hymn. And um, he's make, Jesus is making uh, the devil real nervous. And, um, you know, we're gonna, what we're going to see is, is Satan talking about, you know, all these things that he's done to bewitch mankind, to lead them into darkness and death and, and all sorts of stuff. Um, and Jesus is going to undo that. Satan is very nervous about this. And um, so the first half of this hymn, or maybe you know, maybe two-thirds or even three-quarters, is going to be all about the work of the devil. And then death is going to appear at the end and uh, gloat over the Lord Jesus on the cross. And uh, we're going to get a, a, you know, some delicious... Uh, a delicious reversal at the very end when everything is, you know, both death and Satan are undone by the risen Lord Jesus. So we're in for a treat. All right, so the first stanza. The evil one said, I am afraid of this Jesus in case he may wreck my plans. Here I am thousands of years old, and I've never had a moment free from activity. I've not seen anything in existence that I've neglected or let go. And now there comes along someone who makes the debauched chaste, causing me to lament from now on because he is destroying all that I've built up. I have labored much in giving instruction, for I have enshrouded the whole of creation in all kinds of evil. Okay, So as I said, Satan is real nervous. He's about Jesus. Uh, Jesus is coming and making the debauched chaste. You know, he's undoing this 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 work of darkness that the devil has has brought about, right? And um, it's just, I just love to see this kind of thing. It's just, it's great. It's a lot of fun, and, um, you know, he's going to get a lot of mileage out of this, St. Saint, Saint Ephraim will. So, in any case. So here you have the refrain of the hymn, Blessed is he who has come and laid bare the wiles of the crafty one. Right? So this is a, a reference to the devil taking are, uh, you know, possessing a serpent in the Garden of Eden and, and uh, deceiving mankind and leading them into sin. So Christ is the one who, who lays bare the schemes of the crafty one and even, um, you, c- you could say, leads, um, well, he deceives the devil in a certain, way, in a certain sense. Um, one of our church fathers, Gregory of Nyssa, uh, put it this way, that, uh, that Christ on the cross was sort of like the bait on the hook, Right, the cross was the hook and Christ was the bait and Leviathan came and uh, you know, the, the creature of the deep came and thinking that it would devour this man you know, in full and swallow him up entirely. But then you know, Christ bursts from the bowels and, uh, and conquers the great beast. Uh, you can kind of see that there's a little bit of deception there. You know, Christ deceives the devil, in fact, and it's, it's a lot of fun to think about. But in any case, yes, so blessed is he who has come and laid bare the wiles of the crafty one. Okay, so the second stanza. I matched my course with the swift. This is the devil speaking. I matched my course with the swift and outstripped them. I engaged in battle, and the multitudinous throng served as my weapon. I rejoiced in the throng of the populace, for they gave me a little opportunity, seeing that the impact of numbers is powerful. With a huge army, I raised up a great mountain of a tower, stretching it up to heaven. If they could wage war with the height, how much more will they defeat this man who fights on earth? Okay, so the devil talking here about how he, he is superior to all of mankind in the, in the conflict with which he wages, or the war with which he uh, wages against mankind, and you can see how he... Uh, in the, in the reference off to the right. These, by the way, are included um, uh, by the translator. He throws these in there. Um, so referring to the Tower of Babel here, the Tower of Babel. Um, he, the devil amasses this great army and they build this tower into the heavens and they wage war against God and against the angels, right? And they stand against and oppose to the purposes of God. And so if they could wage war with the height, as the devil says here, how much more will they defeat this man who fights on earth? You know, I assume this, that he's talking about Jesus here. You know, the whole, you know, both Jew and Gentile conspired together to, to put Jesus to death and, you know, um, he's, he's taking stock, potentially, in, in his forces that he was able to amass, um, not only in, uh, in opposing Jesus, but also uh, the disciples of Jesus, you might say. Right. So going on in the third stanza, Using whatever opportunity the occasion offers, I wage war with discretion. The Jewish people heard that God was one, but they made themselves a multitude of gods. But when they saw the Son of God, they rushed back to the one God. So that on the pretext of confessing God, they denied his Son. Pretending to show zeal, they were running away from him. So that on every occasion, they are found to be perverse because they are godless. So here you can see the work of the devil in, in um, getting the Jewish people, even God's covenant people, right, who heard and, and have long confessed that God was one. Um, even they, by their own perversion and uh, sinfulness, they made for themselves a multitude of gods, right? You can look to uh, the prophet Jeremiah, in particular, where he says this kind of thing. Isaiah also echoes this, and particularly in, in uh, chapter 44, where, you know, he lambasts the people for, um, you know, bowing down and worshiping blocks of wood or, or trees or stones, Right. Uh, you know, you can see these things. So even the Jewish people who knew that God was one, they made a multitude of gods. But then when the Son of God came, they said, oh, well, no, God is one. We don't want to accept Jesus as the Son of God. That's, you know, we, we believe God is one. So in, in, every, in any and every case, the devil has gotten the Jewish people to show that they are perverse and godless, in fact. Right? Uh, is, is the pace going okay? Is there, Am I going too fast, or is this, is this good? Okay, great. All right, uh, ver- ch- uh, stanza four. I have a great many years' experience, and no child have I ever disdained. Indeed, I have been very attentive to children, making sure that they acquired bad habits from the very start, so that their faults might grow up as they themselves grew up. And the devil, you know, talking about how he targets children, and indeed he does. We certainly see that in our day and age. Um, so back to our text. There are some stupid fathers who do not injure the seed that I have sown in their sons, while others, like good farmers, have uprooted those faults from the minds of their children. Okay. So here you kind of get a taste for the devil as catechist, right? as the infernal Catechist of darkness Who sows his seeds um, Very subtly And you can think of the, That one particular parable I can't remember exactly where it is But uh, you know, a farmer goes out To sow his seed And then at night an enemy comes in And sows in weeds Right, and This is what the devil does And um, it's especially bad When he is able to do this to children right? And work his uh, All sorts of vices That we're about to see him um, go into, um, but it's especially bad when he inculcates these in in children, and we can see, you know, we can see this playing out in real time in our own society, as I kind of uh, hinted at. But in any case, um, so yes, what we're about to see is Satan going into a number, listing off a number of vices by which he ensnares men, right? And all of this, again, let's remember is being couched in terms of um, this is the work of the devil and Satan, or er, um, and Jesus is about to undo it all, right? So all this careful, painstaking work, Jesus is going to undo, and and um, you know the devil's not happy, just to say the least. So in stanza five, the devil says here, instead of using a chain, I have bound men with sloth, and they have sat down idle. And Bob, this might be your favorite um, Acadia. You might think of that here. Thus I have deprived their senses from doing anything good, their eyes from reading, their mouths, their mouth from singing praise, their minds from learning, how keen they are for barren and useless tales. At empty talk they excel, but should the word of life be mentioned in their presence, either they will drive it out or get up and leave." (laughs) So, um, sloth here being used by the devil to get people to be very complacent, to be uh, inattentive. Um, th- you, see, you see this kind of dulling of people's senses that the devil brings about, right? Their eyes do not want to read, uh, especially the Word of God. Their mouth doesn't want to sing. Their minds don't want to learn the Holy Scriptures, right? But on the, on the flip side... Notice how keen people are for barren and t- useless tales, things that don't actually produce the fruit of righteousness. Right? This, on the other hand, is what, what men love to do. You know, they, they're very slothful with regard to the Word of God, but uh, with things that are of no consequence whatsoever, that will not bring life and the fruit of righteousness and peace. Um, at those things they excel. Right? In stanza six, However many Satans there are in a person, it is I alone whom everyone curses. And without having um, knowledge of Syriac in particular, um, I'm kind of taking this to mean um, when he says however many Satans there are in a person, so Satan in the sense of like adversary, so your vices can be conceived of as, in a sense, um, an adversary, right? Certainly something that hinders your growth and knowledge and maturation in the Word of God, right? So these Satans are vices. However many Satans there are in a person, it is I alone whom everyone curses. A man's anger is like a devil which harasses him daily. Other demons are like travelers who only move on if they are forced to. But with anger, even if all the righteous adjure it, it will not be rooted out from its place. Instead of hating destructive envy, everyone hates some weak and wretched devil. So here we, we've seen sloth be enumerated, and now we've seen anger and envy here, um, these other vices that that the devil brings up as his work in and among the sons of man. Right. So you have anger harassing a man that just won't go away. Um, other demons sticking around for a while. They're uh, you know you know they they're they're hard to eradicate. Right. Um, and then you see. One thing that the devil does often is he gets people to despise vices or you know things that really are not as serious as the other vices that they should be paying attention to. So, for example, at the bottom he says again, I- instead of in hate, instead of hating destructive envy, everyone hates some weak and wretched devil. So think, for example, of somebody who maybe e- it has a tendency to eat a little bit too much, right? And they say, "Well, I had uh, you know." Um, I had another piece of cake, and I shouldn't have had that piece of cake. And, you know, they fixate on that, and they just think, oh, woe is me, I'm such a wretched person. My whole diet is shot, and this is all awful. But they neglect the worst devil, the worst vice that they have of envy, right? This thing that's actually something that they should be addressing. The devil has their focus on this lesser vice, right? Uh, Everything is just twisted and warped, and, 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 you know, that you can see how the devil works that way too. He's got our focus on the wrong thing. Okay, here in stanza seven, it looks like we're going to get a little bit of a cultural reference um, with regard to a snake charmer. Okay, so stanza seven. The snake charmer is put to shame along with the enchanter who daily brings snakes into submission. The viper which is inside him defies him for he fails to subdue the lust within himself. Okay, so there you can see, again, this sort of, this, this irony here. You have a snake charmer, you know, think of like uh, the guy playing the flute or whatever instrument that is, and you've got the cobra that's kind of entranced at the music. Um, so you've got the snake ch- uh, charmer who can bring that snake into submission, but the viper inside him of lust, the snake charmer cannot charm, right? That snake defies him, so you've got a focus on the lesser thing, you know, this, this some some snake, some you know creature, but um, they focus on that rather than the snake of lust within that defies them, and no charm can can um, can subdue it, right? So hidden sin going forward, hidden sin is like a snake. When it breathes on him, he gets burnt right up. Okay, so I take this to mean like um, when the snake, uh, like say bites somebody and, and you know injects that uh, poor soul with venom or something, um, and there's this burning sensation, uh, so too when sin um, breathes or um, energizes us, you might say, uh, we are con- we're burnt right up, we're consumed, right, with our lust, with our... Envy, anger, pride, all of these things. Um, that's, that's the nature of hidden sin. You know, it's, not, it's not an obvious thing uh, at first, but that is the nature of it, um, to consume us, to burn us up inside. Right? Even when he has succeeded in catching the viper using his skill, delusion strikes him secretly. He lulls the serpent with his incantations. But by these same incantations, he arouses against himself great wrath. (laughs) So here, too, again, you see um, this—you the snake charmer using skill to to catch the the serpent. Um, And then he uses incantations to, to lull the serpent, to demonstrate his mastery over the serpent. But ironically, by these same incantations, he arouses against himself great wrath, the wrath of God. So you've got the, you know, the, the snake that is put that is made docile by the incantations, but God is aroused in his anger, right? And he meets out his wrath on the sorcerer, you could say, right? So all of this very ironic, very, you know, you can just see the devil just, just toying with people almost, using these various vices to, to do these things. So again, just to take stock of all of the vices that we've seen, um, we've seen sloth we've seen anger envy we've seen lust brought up explicitly and now we've seen sorcery which is not uh, per se a vice but but still a satanic art nonetheless right and all of these things do in fact uh, rouse the wrath of god okay any thoughts any reflections on all this what do you what do you guys make of all this is it uh, yes go ahead Okay, that's a good question. Yeah, I I apologize. So St. Ephraim the Syrian, the question was, when was this written? So St. Ephraim the Syrian, I believe he was in the 4th century, so somewhere in the 300s. Yeah, very ancient.
1: Everything stays the same.
0: Mm -hmm, Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, that's exactly right. Yeah. Following human nature, uh, you know, this is the way it goes. And, um, you know, there's a a marked difference between vices in children and... You know, the vices of people who are aged, I think. You know, these things that just... St- these vices that stay with a human being over the course of, say, 70 years or something. You know, the nature of that vice is going to be much different from the vice of a child, which can be easily corrected, right? Or more, a lot more easily corrected than with, you know, somebody who's well-advanced in years, I should say. Yes?
2: I just want to comment on the uh, media, Hollywood, and... Just from my perspective, you know, we used to go to a movie once a week for two hours, or maybe once every two weeks. Now there's binge watching, and there's such flooding of the human mind with this uh, various levels of uh, uh, these sins that are listed. You know, right? Uh, and it's it's coming on with greater intensity and quantity. The mm-hmm. quantity, of people people just so that's the. Uh, none of which lends to righteousness.
0: You're exactly right. You're exactly right. I can't help but think that when people come to the end of their life they're not going to say, "Man, I wish I watched another season of Lost or Family Guy or something, you know. They're going to, you know, if they're being honest, they would sh- they should say, you know, I, I really wish that I had paid attention to this to the word of God <laughs> and learned, you know, the the mysteries of Christ. You know, I that's really what matters. And, um, you know, it's, you're absolutely right. There is a flood of perverse media, increasingly perverse media. Um, and just the desensitization of human beings and our culture. I mean, just, you know, I, I remember just passing th- by one of my friends who was watching some Netflix show, and I was just astounded at the things that I saw on this series. And I was just thinking, when I was a kid, even me, you know, I'm old enough to remember a time, you know, I'm almost 28, I remember a time when this sort of thing never would have flown back then. But now it's just, oh, well, you don't like this? Well, what are you, some sort of prude or something? Yeah. Right? So, yeah, things are degenerating. But that's what happens when you say that nothing is sacred in a society, and people um, despise the Word of God and, and, uh, and, and Christ, and this is just the, the fruit of that. And um, you know, we're seeing how just how far culture can decay using these same vices that the devil used, you know, of old. They, they are still, you know, the devil is very seasoned. He's very much practiced. And um, in any case, that's, I should probably limit my, my political commentary to that. But you're right. You're absolutely right, Barry.
1: So is the snake charmer someone who's just trying to conquer sin on their own without Christ or...
0: You could maybe you could say like by analogy or maybe like um, this could be like an allegory for that um I just take this to mean more of a, of a of a cultural reference to somebody who charms a snake maybe uh, as a show for like money you know like may think of like a circus performer or something like that, or like a sideshow street artist who does these crazy things for money and, and attention right, and so Ephraim is just pointing out that. You know, it, while it may dazzle the eyes and it may dazzle the senses, there's a lot more going on inside that this person is neglecting, and even his own art by which he subdues the snake, to the amazement of everybody. this is actually arousing the wrath of God, right? But I, uh, your point is well taken,. Yeah. Anybody else? All right, let's push forward. Oh, okay
3: In Deuteronomy eight, um there is reference to this deterioration, and I've got it in my iPhone, but i this came upon me rather quickly. But it is a, uh, st- a st- the subtlety of being drawn in to his shenanigans, mm-hmm. is presented in, in Deuteronomy 8. I'd like to present it to you some other time, but I'm not ready right now. Okay. But it is what we're seeing in our culture very readily.
0: Yeah. Well, I have my Bible here. Do you happen to remember what, uh, where it was at in Deuteronomy 8? What, what verse you're talking about?
3: This was presented in a cl- in the Saddleback Americas class. Mm-hmm. Think of that. This is, this is a secular class where the professor is giving the um, the very thing that you're presenting in this Christian Bible class. Mm-hmm. But it tells of the deterioration, how you are tempted, and it's it's uh, a uh, sweet little thing that's happening at the beginning, and then at the end, you're fully drawn into the evil
0: thing. Ah, yes, yes. And, you know, actually, in this hymn, we're about to get to a part where um, Satan bewitches the even the patient, even the long-suffering, yeah. and, um, and subdues even that person, too. So, but yeah, you're, yeah. Um, yeah, as, uh, as the Lord says, or as Moses says um, in, in Deuteronomy 8... Um, You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth, that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers as it is this day. And if you forget the Lord your God and go after other gods and serve them and worship them, I solemnly warn you today that you shall surely perish. Like the nations that the Lord makes to perish before you, so shall you perish, because you would not obey the voice of the Lord your God. Yeah. So... Yeah, the devil is very crafty. Sometimes it's overt, sometimes it's covert, but in all things he works to separate God from his people and um, to lead his people um, into doubt, unbelief, and great shame and vice, as Luther says. But anyway, uh, let's, let's press forward here in, in, uh, stanzas in stanza eight and following. Uh, uh, this is the devil speaking. I set my stings and sat and waited who else has so stretched out his patience with everyone i sat beside the long suffering and gradually bewitched him until he was reduced to despair okay so i sat my sti- i set my stings and sat and waited so um, i tend to think of this as like setting up a trap right uh, s- setting up like a th- think of like the little uh, noose to catch a rabbit, you know, like, the, and, you know, somebody lying in wait to see the prey that he catches, right, a hunter, um, and so even here, we see him attacking um, the long-suffering and the patient, and, and I find this ironic, too, that St. That, um, Ephraim couches the devil as having his own sort of virtue of patience, right, look at what he says, who else has, has so stretched out his patience with everyone, right, the devil has exceeded everyone in patience, right, um, and getting people to, to apostatize or, you know, reducing them to despair, etc., right? So the devil has sat beside the long suffering and, and look at this, gradually bewitched him until he was reduced to despair, right? And how do you suppose that he does that? By saying things like, God is not for you, friend. It's just, why would you suffer like this if God is for you? right? Why would this happen? Just, and it may not happen all at once, the devil doing this, but just over time, just slowly, just inserting his thoughts and backing away. Insert, you know, just constantly, you know, it's always there. He's always bringing it to mind. You know, God doesn't want you to, to live, to prosper. He's not, you're not his child. You are, you are nothing. He has abandoned you, right? This is, this is how gradually over time he can reduce people to despair, especially through suffering, Right. Um, and he goes on here, "...as for the person who shrinks from sin, habit subdued him." Okay, so someone who's virtuous or has a you know, disposition to avoid evil, just, uh, let's say, a, a Christian, you know, by the power of the Spirit, s- shrinks back from sin, you know, wants to avoid it and be very careful. Habit is what, in fact, subdued that kind of person. "...little by little," he says, "...I wore him down until he came under my yoke." Once he had come and got used to it, he did not want to leave it again. Right? So habit is how the devil subdues some people. And so you can see that the devil, even just by looking at some people, again, he's very seasoned, very uh, pra- well-practiced, well very intelligent being, and he knows our own personal vices and how he can subdue us. Okay, and he's got, you know, just like a physician of souls applies medicine to, to bring about the well-being of the patient, um, the devil ha- has a contrary infernal and dark art in this way. And he applies these various methods to the destruction, to the decay of the human being. And they often feed off one another, right? These vices, they go hand in hand. Yes?
2: Back, back to the word acadia or acedia. Uh this is why I think it's so important to avoid that condition because what inoculates us from what you're talking about here is staying in the Word, staying in the sacraments, st- you know, staying in church. Uh, it, it's a defense against the condition.
0: Yeah, well and said. Mm-hmm. So, Absolutely. There's a proverb... Uh, in, the, in the Proverbs of Solomon somewhere that says, Consider the ant, O sluggard. You know, the ant is, is always busy, always moving, always working and doing things. And if even so small a creature as an ant is always busy himself, you know, staying active, stay, you know, um, uh, doing these things, um, how much more should we as the sons of God do this kind of thing too? And it is to our great detriment. You know, Luther says somewhere, um, what mad, senseless fools we are to despise the word of God. What mad, senseless fools. To so for God to give us the sword of the Spirit, right? And and all the armor of God, and for us to say, Nope. Um, I think I'm gonna watch TV. I'm gonna, you know, and, and go from one unproductive, ungodly activity to the next until, you know, you just say, well, I'll just put this off. You just a little bit longer, and a little bit longer, and a little bit longer. And, you know, before, you know, even if you have good intentions, it's like, by the end of the day, what can you say? You know, um, you, you've, slept, you, you've slipped into this sort of condition. And um, I think that at least some of our church fathers would say that um, Acadia is, an is, is sort of an outgrowth of a kind of self-love. You know, this idea that, that we understand, we know, and we're, we're seasoned, we are well-versed, and, and there's you know, it's nothing new that you're presenting, so look, I understand it already, I know it, and I'm just going to do what I want to do now. You know, I'm not going to busy myself and exert myself because, I, in my opinion, I don't need to. Right? You can see this sort of self-love working its way. Even though God himself, uh, all over in the place in, in his word, says, you know, like in Psalm 1, um, I meditate on the law. Uh, day and night, right? Um, that, maybe that's a different one, but uh, all over the place in the Psalms and wisdom literature, you can see this idea at work that the Word of God is our life. It is our, our light and salvation, and um, we must cling to it. So, in any case, thank you, Bob. Okay, so we see the devil um, bewitching the long suffering, the patient reducing him to despair. We also see him subduing the person who shrinks away from sin by habit. And then once the devil can introduce, finally wear him down and whittle him down um, into some sort of um, bad habit, then once he's gotten into that habit, then the the person doesn't want to leave. You know, he's a creature of habit, and so that's what he gets, you know, he's sort of stuck in a rut this way, right? So in stanza nine, I perceived and saw that the long-suffering person is someone who can subdue everything. When I conquered Adam, he was only one, so I left him until he had fathered children. Okay, Um, And I looked for some other work, so that idleness might have no experience of me. I started counting the sand of the sea to make myself patient and to test my memory to see if it could cope with mankind once they had multiplied. Before they did so, I had tried them in many ways. Okay. And um, this here, you'll, you'll notice that there's a reference to uh, Ben Sirach here. So this is the book of Sirach in the Apocrypha. And um, so this is the, the verse that, that is being referred to here. All wisdom cometh from the Lord and is with him forever. The sand of the seas... And the drops of rain and the days of eternity, who can number them? Right, so that's from the book of Sirach, the first chapter. And uh, so you see the devil here saying that he you know he subdued Adam, but that wasn't good enough for him, and he didn't want to allow himself to become caught up and rest on the fruits of or on, on his laurels, right? He didn't want to just become complacent here. So he he, he departed Adam until an opportune time, namely when Adam had children. Okay, and so until this time you see uh, Satan busying himself, right? Not allowing idleness to have any experience of him. So sta- Satan is counting the, the grains of sand on the seashore, just busying himself and trying to, to make himself better and better, only then to come back with that much more force and power and, um, um, you know, uh, he makes himself greater so that he can afflict mankind even more, right? Okay. So Ricker. Yes. Quick question.
2: Uh, did I miss it or is, has death spoken in one of these yet? De- death
0: has not yet been introduced. Oh, okay. he's, death has come in, though. Okay. Yeah. Right. Hold on. Just
3: a quick comment. I see a correlation between him counting the sand of the sea and Abram's descendants are going to be great. Uh, ah, yeah. Keep up with
0: it. That's great. That is absolutely great. And I, maybe that's that's actually what's going on here. I didn't think of that, but you're right. So. Um, the comment was about uh, the promise made to Abraham that his descendants will be as numerous as the stars of heaven, um, and that, and you know, we find this later in Scripture too that the that the number of the saints will be as great as the sands on the uh, on the seashore, right? And so Satan testing himself to see if he can keep up and see if he can still be a match for humanity that's faithful to God, even in all of its multiplicity, right? And all of its numbers, you know, Satan's trying to keep up. Uh, that's a great that's a great point. Mhm. Well, you're getting your steps in today, Barry.
3: <laughs> this is the elaboration on Deuteronomy. I found it in on, okay. on my iPhone. All with great elaboration, though. Number 1, and I'm just reading it as it was presented to me. Number 1, poverty, number 2, hunger because of our poverty, then develops intrinsic motivations to get out of our poverty and out of our hunger. Then there are discoveries. Number six, growth comes from those discoveries with expanding developments. Number eight, wealth comes out of those expanding developments. Arrogance follows, but weakness comes with that. (laughs) Humility creating weak men from negative humility. Finally, finally, there's a return in awareness of fellow humans and a, of compounding humility before God, thus creating hard times for yourself. So keep evaluating yourself to not get sloppy. Mm-hmm. Keep training hard. Some of that is from the, my grandsons who are in the military.
0: Yeah, thank you for sharing that. Yeah, you can see this sort of cyclical nature to all of this, right? And uh, it's... it's well, worth our consideration and our meditation to, to think on that. And um, you know, just as an enjo- uh, you know um, what shall I say, um, encouragement and exhortation and admonishment to pursue virtue, to pursue piety, to busy ourselves in learning there's always something more to be learned about the Word of God. Um, there's always something to do, and you can be certain that the devil is not inactive. he is always active, looking to bring about some sort of um, you know, seeking ways, as St. Peter says, uh, he's a, a, a roaring lion seeking someone whom he may devour. Okay, let's not just brush that off, right? I mean, this is a serious—Satan is looking for your spiritual downfall, and he is very much busying himself to that end. Okay, he may not do it all at once. It may be slow and gradual. Sometimes it may be acute and, and awful in, a, in, in really horrific ways. But that is what he wants to do, and if he can just get people to have acadia or if he can get people to say, "Well, I'm free in the gospel to not pursue piety," um, you know, this we're playing right into his hand, right? And um, we see the great value of piety, and um, in, in that we seek more and receive more from the Lord, right? We, we occupy ourselves with the things of God, and um, you know, we show ourselves to be His people, right? In faith. Yeah, but thank you, thank you, Ellie. Okay, so let's finish, um, uh, well, actually, we just finished stanza 9, and so now, in stanza 10, there's going to be a little bit of a shift, um, what we're going to see now is the servants of the evil one, okay, so th- you might think of, like, the lesser demons, okay? So, stanza 10, the servants of the evil one disputed with him, refuting his words with their own rejoinders. Okay, and now we get what they have to say. Look at Elisha, who brought a, a dead man back to life, who overcame death in the upper room, reviving the widow's son. He is now subdued in Sheol. Okay, so basically the, the argument goes here. Um, you know, the devil's worried about Jesus, who has just died on the cross and, uh, and uh, has descended into, into Hades, into Sheol. So the, the servants of the evil one are just saying, well, look at Elisha. He too was a prophet, and he too brought a man back to life, um, and he, re- he revived the widow's son. And um, what we're going to see later is uh, actually just a few lines down is that this, this very curious story in 2 Kings where Eli- Elisha had been buried and um, somebody had tossed a dead body into the grave of Elisha um, this was very, done very hastily and haphazardly because there was a band of, I think, Moabite raiders in the area. And so they had to bury this guy in haste, right? Th- these raiders are coming, so we've got to bury this guy. So they toss this body um, onto the bones of Elisha. And upon touching the bones of Elisha, this man revives. And he is raised from the dead. Okay. Second Kings 13. Check it out. It's, it's a really um, amazing thing. So... Um, you see the servants of the evil one saying, well, you know, look, uh, we got Elisha. He brought a dead man back to life. He, re- he revived the widow's son. Now he is subdued in Sheol. So this Jesus, you know, what, what's the big deal, right? Um, he's, he's just like Elisha. But you see Satan's response. Because the evil one was very quick-witted, he refuted their words by means of their own words. And this is, this is what he has to say. How can Elisha be defeated seeing that he has in Sheol itself brought back the dead to life by means of his bones, right? So the devil is basically saying, how can Elisha truly be defeated if even in death he's raising people from the dead, right? So Elisha is in Sheol and he's raising people to life even in Sheol, right? So if even he is doing that, well, what is is this Jesus going to do now that he's died, right? So you can see how the devil refutes the, the lesser demons, uh, using the words of Scripture, right? It's is, is kind of you know, it's, it's great to see this kind of thing. Because, most especially because um, even with the devil's great knowledge of Scripture, you know, he he fails to perceive how awesome and mighty Jesus really is. But we'll we'll leave that to to uh, to Saint Ephraim to to bring out for us. Okay, so in stanza eleven, uh, Satan continuing here, if Elisha who was insignificant, had such great power in Sheol, if he could raise up a, uh, one dead man there, how many dead will the death of the mighty Jesus raise? You should learn from this, my companions, how much greater is this Jesus than us, seeing that he has cunningly led you astray, and you failed to take in his greatness, merely comparing him to the prophets. Right. So the devil's saying, you know, hey, Jesus is, you guys misunderstand him completely. He's way better uh, than any mere prophet like this. So your arguments, you know, they, they don't hold up. Okay? And he says this explicitly here. stands at 12. Your consolations are of little help, says the evil one to his entourage. How can death contain the man who raised up the dead Lazarus? And if death does conquer him, it is because he willingly subjects himself and if he willingly subjects himself to it, then you should fear him all the more, for he will not die to no purpose. He'll be the, gr- the cause of great grief to us, for by dying he will enter in and raise up Adam to life. Okay. So Adam here in the sense of, uh, so Adam in Hebrew is man, sort of generally, mankind, that's the idea here. So Jesus descending, he, him dying on the cross and descending into hell, raises mankind uh, to life. Okay, raises us from our, our, our bondage to death, our subjection to death. Jesus entering into the realm of the dead springs us, right? He, he enters in and he... And he uh, as it were, harrows hell in this way, you know, raising up humanity from death, from the, 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 the grasp, the clutches of death. Okay. So here, yeah, Satan's rejoinder to, to, the, to the lesser demons. Any thoughts on, on this? Any, any reflections on this? Okay. So now, now we're going to see death. And this, this is a, a really fun device that, that we see Ephraim... Uh, bringing to bear here. Okay, so stanza thirteen, death peered out from inside his cavern, astonished to see our Lord crucified. You know, I I just love this that that death is portrayed as some sort of foul beast that pokes his head out from inside this lair. You know, and uh, you know he, he's astonished to see our Lord Jesus crucified. And we'll see this is now death being personified here um, and speaking. You know, taunting the Lord Jesus. And this is so great, too, in particular, because we know that all of this taunting and gloating that death and Satan eventually is going to do here in the, at t- towards the end of our hymn, um, all of it is going to be uh, smashed. All of it's th- they're both going to be put to silence uh, by the risen Lord. Kay? So here's what death has to say. Where are you now, raiser of the dead? Will you be food for me in place of the tasty Lazarus, whom I still savor in my mouth? Let Jairus' daughter come and see this cross of yours. Let the widow's son gaze upon you. A tree caught Adam for me. Blessed is the cross that caught the son of David for me. Mm. All right. So here, you know, again, notice the the very you know the, the way that he weaves these biblical um, allusions in just so seamlessly. Death. Uh, making reference to, to the tasty Lazarus, whom he devoured, right? Jairus's daughter, um, whom um, Jesus healed, right? Both, and, and of course, Lazarus being raised from the dead. Um, you know, these, these are individuals that uh, were seemingly brought out of the grasp and clutches of, of, uh, of death but, by, by Jesus, but nevertheless they returned, right? And so, um, Satan, or a, a death taunting the Lord Jesus on the cross, you know, Um, A tree caught Adam for me. Blessed is the cross that caught the son of David for me. You know, one much greater, right? The second Adam, you might say. All right, stanza 14. Death opened his mouth and further said, Have you never heard, son of Mary, of Moses, how he excelled all men in his greatness, how he became a god, performing the works of God by killing the Egyptian firstborn and saving the Hebrew? How he held back the plague from the living. Yet I went up with the same Moses to the mountain, and God, blessed be his honor, handed him over to me in person. Okay, so even one as great as Moses, right? Even one as great as Moses, who excelled all men in in greatness, how he, in a manner of speaking, became a god, you know, and the Lord when uh, you, you'll recall that when the Lord commissioned Moses to go speak on his behalf to the people of Israel uh, prior to the Exodus, Moses backed away. He said he didn't want to do it, right? And the Lord's anger was kindled at this. And so then he said, well, bring Aaron. He can speak well. And he, the Lord says to Moses specifically, um, I will put my words in your mouth, and you will speak to him to speak to the people of Israel, and you will be as God to him. Right, so the things that, that Moses speaks, Aaron is going to, to then announce and proclaim to the people of Israel. Right, so in this way, you, could, uh, you can see why St. Uh, Ephraim would say he became a god, performing the works of God. Right? So Moses declaring and announcing all of these plagues that are going to take place, and then they happen. Right? Um, he performed the works of God, and perhaps uh, culminating uh, most especially in the 10th plague, killing the, the Egyptian firstborn and saving the Hebrew Okay, and how he held back the plague. So this is a reference, as you see here, to Numbers 16, where the, um, the people of Israel had rebelled against the authority of Moses and Aaron, and God tells Moses and Aaron to get away from the people of Israel, to separate themselves from the congregation, that he would consume them immediately. But um, Moses told Aaron to go and, and get a censer full of incense and go and burn it and bring it into the midst of the people. right? And the people... Um, are enveloped in this cloud of incense, right and Aaron becomes this mediator that saves the people from certain death by this plague that God had unleashed right so it 's really an amazing thing here and again, just again, you, you see the, the very rich biblical allusions being weaved in here seamlessly it right? 's so it's it's a beautiful work of art. and then finally, um, how he went how death went up. Mountain with Moses, right? And God handed him, uh, handed Moses over to death, right? So even God handed over this great man, this, you know, Moses, um, the one who excelled all men, right? God handed him over personally to death uh, on the mountain. You can find that in Deuteronomy 32 and 34. Okay, so now at the bottom of this stanza, stanza 14, we're going to see this, the summation of what death's point is here. Okay, so this is what he says, however great one of adam's sons becomes he will return as dust for he comes from the earth okay so you can see death saying it doesn't matter how great you are jesus every man whoever they are they will all return to the dust they will all be given to me because um, this is this is the way it goes ever since man fell into sin this has been the destiny of all mankind going back into the dust Right, out of the dust they came, and now out of the in, back into the dust they're going because of their sin. So this is the taunt of death to Jesus. Okay, so um, stanza 15 here. Uh, now death is, um, uh, d- is going to be, um, well, there's a great change here that takes place. Okay, so let's, let's take a look at what and see what happens. Stanza 15. Satan came along with his soldiers to look at our Lord lying in Sheol. And to rejoice with death, his fellow counselor. But he saw him all gloomy and bewailing the dead, who at the firstborn's cry had come to life and departed from Sheol. Okay, so here, if you take a look at Matthew 27, you hear the cry of Jesus on the cross when he dies and the, the, the earth shakes, the, temp- you know, the, the veil in the temple is torn in two. And um, we even find in Matthew 27:50 50 and 52 that, um, that the graves were opened and that saints had um, actually arisen from the dead, the, from the realm of the dead, in their bodies and came into the holy city. Okay? They had been raised from the dead once Jesus had died and descended into the realm of the dead. Okay? And it's an amazing thing right? And so death, you see, death is all gloomy now, because Jesus, you know, this is what happened, right? Death is gloomy. Um, So the evil one arose to comfort death, his relative, okay? And here's what the evil one has to say. You have not lost as much as you have gained. As long as Jesus is in your grasp, everyone who has lived and is living will come into your hands. Okay, so (laughs) they... You see the evil, one, the devil trying to comfort and console death. You know, don't be, don't be despondent. Don't be somber. You know, it's okay. As long as Jesus is, is is in your grasp, is in your clutches, everyone is going to die again. It's fine. It's look. Even if they're even if they're raised to life now, it doesn't matter. They're all going to return. Okay. So uh, this last stanza here. Then we'll see how things things end. Open up so that we can see him and jeer at him. This is the devil speaking to death. Open up so that we can see him and jeer at him. Let us take up the refrain and say, where is your power? Three days are already past. Let us say to him, you who are three days dead, raised up Lazarus, four days dead. Raise yourself up now. Okay, so here, you know, taunting Jesus again, having died. But look what happens. Death duly opened up the gates of Sheol, and out from it shone the radiance of our Lord's face. Like the men of Sodom, they were all smitten. They groped around looking for Sheol's gate, which had disappeared. Right? So right in the very act of saying, hey, let's open up you know open up death let's let's taunt him and jeer at the lord jesus in the in the very way that they go and, and attempt to to uh to mock him they in fact are struck with blindness just like the men of sodom who uh were blinded by the angels right who were um outside of the house of lot and um all those men in that day were were blinded they were groping around they couldn't see anything and now because of the radiance of the lord's face the devil and death and presumably everyone else, all the demons, the demonic horde, they are all struck with a blindness because of the glory of Jesus. Right. It's a beautiful thing. It's a, it's, a, it's a lot of fun. I hope that you, that you guys enjoyed this, this hymn. Um, you can see, again, I, I wanted to, to really highlight just the, the richness of all the biblical texts that have been sort of uh, woven throughout this hymn. And the, the great astuteness of, of Saint Ephraim, and um, you know the, the artfulness of it all, I mean, it's, just a, it's really a beautiful thing, and just how insightful this particular church father was with human nature and the work of the devil, and how Christ uh, is, the, is the answer. right any, any reflections, any thoughts, questions about all of this? Yes, please..
2: The other thing that wasn't mentioned here is the Valley of the Dry Bones. Ah, yeah, that's one of my favorite. I don't know if it's metaphorical, or if it, or if it happened or what, but it doesn't matter because it, you know, it's like okay, when life comes into presence with with death, life wins because it, yeah. you know, the the bones are becoming alive.
0: Right. So, absolutely, yeah. It would have been fun to see Saint Ephraim weave that in here too. I would, uh, you know. It would, be, it would be really neat to see how exactly he did that. But uh, you're absolutely right. Yes.
1: So what occurs to me is the teaching of this poetry, you know, of mm-hmm. this
0: hymn. Yeah.
1: Um, It goes through everything. And I feel that about our hymns today. They're teaching us. You know, we know scripture through our hymns. Right. And for those who don't see hymnities and who rely on praise songs. Right. They're... Absenting themselves from the greatest, they're absenting themselves from the great learning of the boundless treasure of hymnody. Right. So. Yeah. And that's what this seems to be.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Three
1: hundred, whatever. Oh.
0: hmm yeah. Oh yeah, oh yeah. You're exactly right. And you know that's one of the most important things I think about our hymnody is as as you said, um, we basically put our theology to song. Right, We're our theology, and um, you know that's that's one of the fundamental changes I, as as I understand it, in the Reformation is that you had um, usually one note per word or syllable, right? And and you know the the melody would go up and down, and you're meant to you know it wasn't just a like Gregorian chant where you just held one note and said a bunch of stuff over and over and over again real fast. It's not like that's completely gone away. Like we, we kind of do that in our in our intro in a little bit, but with our hymnody, it's meant to keep your attention on what it is that you're singing, right, and to emphasize the fact that there's, there's definitive content that you should be paying attention to, and, um, you know, there's, there's legitimate catechesis going on when we sing our hymns, right? And uh, Luther, uh, you know, uh, he, he very much understood the, the great importance of singing, and um, what it can do, you know, and it makes, it, it makes things a lot easier to learn about, you know. Um, a child who, who is, who is uh, not that I know from experience, but a child who is stubborn and doesn't want to learn things, um, if you put something to song, it's like they just open right up, and they just soak it all in, because, you know, this is, this is one of the ways in which God has gifted us and the way that we learn, and... Uh, and so, yeah, when we when we just water down our hymnody, like contemporary evangelicalism, and just all, all of the songs are just very repetitive, just, mon- you know, just kind of lulls you into sort of a stupor, right? But with our, uh, the rich hymnody that we have from the Reformation and beyond, um, you know, you're meant to pay attention. You're meant to, to understand that there's a, there's a story, perhaps. There's Definite content and doctrines being taught in our own hymnody, right? And that's a great tool for teaching the faith. So thank you. Yes? In what context was this presented to you? What context was it presented to me? Was it in a class at the seminary? or No, actually, I was, uh, well, Pastor Rody had asked me to, to lead a class, and I had just been reading Syriac Christian poetry just on my own, and I found that this was uh, a really, because you know, I didn't know anything about it. I didn't know anything about the Syria. You know, you hear about like Coptic Christians and people, um, you know, Christians that are in Syria and stuff like this, and I, but I just, I didn't know anything about them. I didn't know what they believed or how they articulated their, the faith or anything like that. So I was just doing a bunch of reading around, and I found this hymn, and I thought, well, this would be a great thing to, to bring to a class, yeah.
3: Points of our opposition.
0: Yeah. I've never heard of it. Before. Yeah. Yeah, I would definitely recommend it. It's uh, th- that's very uh, as I said highly imaginative and insightful and uh, just very fruitful reading. So. Okay, thank you very much everyone. The Lord be with you.